Merry Christmas. Thank you. I was hoping I'd get a response. Hey, there are a few things uh, more encouraging, especially during the Christmas season, than uh, singing those Christmas songs. Our home group did that Wednesday, and uh, while we had the fellowship and we had good food, it was really 20 to 30 minutes singing the theology, uh, the history of the redemption story and the Christmas account that was the most encouraging. So we're doing a bit of that this morning, but also too, we'll do that in space Tuesday night. So I hope you can be here Tuesday from six to seven for the Lessons and Carol series. It's a delightful time. You just go back and forth from scripture accounts of our fall and God's promises and then the redemption he provides in Christ along with the Christmas carols. It's a great time, great way to start Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So that's Tuesday night. Guys, this morning is a real Christmas message. Uh, we snuck in the Christmas message last week through Haman and Esther and Mordecai in the book of Esther. That seemed like coming in the back door. We're coming in the front door this morning. Before we get there, though, two things, the two places will be this morning. The first is we're going to do a little history, a little backdrop to what, what had been going on in the world so that when Jesus came, what did that look like? What was the context of the incarnation historically, geographically, hopes, expectations. So we'll get a little bit of a history lesson on the front end. And then we'll look at Luke 2. That's the classic Christmas story narrative in the New Testament. And we'll pull out of there three key terms that were full of meaning for the Jews, which I think we often pass over. So that's where we'll focus this morning. So, you know your Old Testament. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, at least in the English version, the way we've arranged them. And chronologically, Malachi was the last of the prophets that spoke for God. So after Malachi, there, had, there occurred what we call 400 silent years or 400 years of silence. But the last word God gave in Malachi was not only sort of a, a remedy or a corrective to the issues going on in Israel's day 400 years before Jesus, but also that book closes and your English Old Testament closes with a promise that's taken up right there in the Luke 2 story. And it's this, in, in Malachi 4 verse 2, we read, For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Now, the Son of Righteousness is a lovely image of Israel's promised Messiah. God's Son of Righteousness is going to rise and he will bring healing with him. A couple verses later, we read this, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Those are the last words of the Old Testament. That's Malachi's last ringing of the bell that there's going to come a time when God's promised Savior, the Son of Righteousness, comes. And by the way, before Him, the one who will introduce the Lord to His people is Elijah. That's the end of the Old Testament. Now from there, we're picking up, and I just have one slide here you won't be able to read. Tell me, guys, I've got the right one. I'm on, and I'm getting nothing. I wonder if I've got the right one. Larry? Where's Larry? We believe this was, this was tested. We were good. Is that you or me? Okay, thank you. It's a trick. They're messing with us, Bill. It's... Okay, so 400 silent years, you may be able to read some of this or none, either way is fine, it's just a graphic for the history we're rolling over. 
So you remember we've already talked in the Heroes and Villains series, 538 BC, the Jews leave the old Babylonian Empire, now the Persian Empire, and they go back to rebuild their temple, their capital, Jerusalem, and the nation. And so that's going on when Malachi prophesied. Interestingly, it's during this time that the sect of the Pharisees develops. And the Pharisees get a very negative treatment, don't they, in the gospel accounts. And, and there's good reason for that, of course. That's not how they started. The Pharisees were the conservative reaction group to the liberal Sadducees. And in the day when they rose up, they were known as the conservative guys that took God's word seriously, believed it, taught it, and still believed in a resurrection. They were the people's party back in the day during these silent years. Israel during these years was torn between warring factions because this was the fallout from Alexander the Great's demise. Now, if you remember in the 300s, Alexander the Great rises up. He's pictured in Daniel as a goat that flies over the earth or he's a leopard with wings on his back, four wings. He decimates the Persian Empire. He takes all of that over, but he dies suddenly. And so his empire was delegated to his four key generals. Two of those we really don't care about. The two we do care about are Ptolemy and Seleucus because they divided Alexander's empire. Ptolemy took Egypt. And so we talk about the Ptolemies. It's Ptolemy and it's his descendants. And Cleopatra was what? Was she Egyptian or Greek? She was Greek because she was Ptolemy's descendant. So Greeks were ruling over the national Egyptian population from Ptolemy down. So he's ruling Egypt. Now north of Israel, it's Seleucus. And then it's the line that comes from Seleucus after him. So these guys, their lines are, are ruling these respective areas for centuries. So Israel is now caught between warring factions on their north and their south. They're the buffer zone in between. And they are getting hammered in both directions, just depending on who's ascendant in the time. To escape Syrian invasions, many of the Jews fled Israel and went back into Egypt. And specifically, they went to the city of Alexandria there on the coast. There were so many Jews there and their native tongue was Greek that they wanted a Bible in their own now mother tongue. And so the Hebrews, the, we call this the Septuagint from the Latin sept for 70. But the Jewish story was, which, which lacks some historic credibility, but it's where we get the name. 72 Jewish scholars in 72 days translated the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament into Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, of course, for them. It's all our Old Testament, but it's their Bible. Into Greek, the mother tongue of the Jews living in that area of the world. And that was hugely significant, not just for them in their day, but guys, that text, the Septuagint, is still used today as a tool in translation. How did the Jews of that day understand the Hebrew and Aramaic should be translated? Uh, under Seleucus's heir Antiochus Epiphanes, and this is about 168 BC, Antiochus comes to Israel and he takes over. He's ruling Israel and he outlaws Jewish covenant practices. He outlawed Jewish Bibles, Jewish scriptures. He outlawed circumcision. And he also desecrated the temple. So a, a family of priests named the Maccabees, they rise up against Antiochus and they kicked the Syrians out and they cleansed the temple and in the meeting of cleansing the temple the oil that they have available to light 
the temple candles is all used up. There's not enough to keep lasting. But miraculously, that oil isn't consumed and it stays lit. And so even now to this day, that's the Jewish feast of lights or Hanukkah still going on today. And people forget this. So 586, the last of Judah is taken captive. But guess what? For a hundred years, from about 160 to 60 BC, the Jews are an autonomous nation again. And guys, they rule the same area that they did basically under David and Solomon. They have the same geographic borders and they're ruling themselves for a golden hundred years. And that falls apart in 63 BC. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, internal strife in Israel over who's, who's in charge, who's ruling. And that's going on in their day too. And so in 63 BC, the Pharisees invite the Roman general Pompey to come in and squash their foes, the Sadducees. And they oblige. And the Romans saying, we love this area so much, we're going to stay. And that was the end of Jewish autonomy under Pompey, 63 BC. Yes. yes. <laughs> really. <laughs> In 40 BC, the villain of the birth account of Jesus, Herod is made king. Herod had a prominent father as a leader that was recognized by the Romans. Herod goes to Rome and the Senate makes him king of Israel. So from 40 BC to about 4 BC, he rules as king over Israel. He's never popular. He's not Jewish. He's a descendant of Esau, he's an Edomite. He's what they called in those days an Idumean. And so he's sitting on David's Jewish throne, but he's not Jewish. He's never liked by the Jews because of that. And of course, there's a lot of other reasons as well. And then from 27 BC to 14 AD, so these are the key players, of course, during Jesus' birth account. Octavian, who was Julius Caesar's adopted son, he is made king. And they didn't say king, they said Caesar. If you go to other parts of the world, they'd say Kaiser. He is the first king of the Roman Empire. Remember, it's run by the Senate before him. He changes his name to Augustus because his reign, his rule is like the bright shining of the sun. It's August, like our month of August. And he rules until 14 AD. So this was an incredibly chaotic four centuries. And it's into this dusty, milieu, confusing time that the birth of Jesus comes. But you remember, the last thing God had said, so we've had 400 years of silence, what's going on on earth, it's a busy time, it's a hectic time, but heaven's not speaking. The last word, the echo of what God had said in Malachi 4 is, the son is coming and Elijah's going to introduce him. And that's where you pick up in Luke's gospel. So before we get to Luke 2 and we'll read there, I want to start in Luke 1. I'm just going to tell the story briefly, verses 5 through 25. The old, old priest, Zacharias, is just taking his turn in the temple. And the lot fell to him to go into the holy place where the incense and the showbread was kept. And he's doing his deal and an angel appears and he's terrified. Now remember, heaven hasn't spoken in 400 years. And suddenly the angel Gabriel is on assignment from heaven, shows up to Zechariah, tells him, hey, don't be afraid. You remember those prayers your old wife Elizabeth and you prayed? probably decades earlier, well, God heard them and you're going to get a son. He's going to give you a son. You're to call his name 
John, which means God is gracious. And then Gabriel quotes Malachi, that John would turn the children in Israel back to God. John would go before Yahweh, before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So when heaven speaks again through the angel Gabriel, it's simply echoing the last thing God had said. The son is coming and Elijah is going to introduce him. Now, six months after that, Gabriel sent on another assignment, this time to a little girl in the north in Nazareth named Miriam. Miriam is her Hebrew name. We would call her Mary. And Gabriel tells her, hey, you've been favored by God. You're going to bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus, which means God is salvation. Gabriel tells her the son would have no earthly father. The Holy Spirit is going to bring about this conception. The one you're bearing is actually the son of God. He's not a human father's son. He is God's son uniquely so. And of course, nine months later, we pick up our story at Luke 2. So that's where we're at. If you have your Bibles, I'm in Luke 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You remember, they were keen about taxes in those days, just like they are today. This was for taxation purposes. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. They say up, because if you go towards Jerusalem from the north, you're going up. Up from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now they're betrothed, which means they're legally married, but they've not consummated their marriage. Joseph and they are, and she are legally married, but not consummated. She's with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That manger was the trough that the feed for the cattle or the goats would have been put in. Could have been a hollowed out stone or log. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, and these are our key terms. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen. So we're going to go back and look at those three key terms from verse 11. The first is this, the angel's first of the trio of descriptive terms for Jesus is that for to you has been born a savior. Now, when you look in this account in Luke's gospel, in Luke 1, verses 67 through 69, uh, Zechariah, we're not telling all the backstory, but Zechariah, it's at the circumcision of his son, John, and he hasn't been able to speak and suddenly he can speak again. He got this great prophetic praise coming from Zechariah at John's circumcision and at his naming. It's funny because most of what he says has nothing to do with his son. It's about the one his son would introduce. He says, you son, you're going to be the one who brings him in. But this is in part 
what he prays. He says, Lord, now you are, excuse me. He says, uh, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. When Zechariah praises God for a savior, he's praising God for a national savior, for someone that would save Israel. And he calls Jesus the horn. Horn was, remember in the Old Testament, a symbol of power. One who comes with the power to save or deliver. When Mary and Joseph in Luke 2, verses 28 through 31, they go to the temple to dedicate Jesus. And you remember the story that while they're there in the temple precinct, there's an old, old guy that comes up named Simeon and he sees Jesus. And when he sees him, he knows something because God had said, before you die, you're going to see my Savior. And so Simeon sees Jesus and he says to God, as he takes Jesus up in his arms, he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, your promise to him, because my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. So Simeon says to see this little baby is to see salvation. Jesus and salvation are, if you will, one and the same. Now, salvation or Savior was a key term for the Jews. This was a big deal of promise from the Old Testament. You think of verses like Isaiah 43. Among the 14 times in the Old Testament, God calls Himself Israel's Savior. So there He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior. God always promised Israel He personally would come as their Savior, and He does so in His Son. And so you get to the New Testament, and 24 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called their Savior. That's the title attributed to Him. He is the promise God said He would send a Savior. John 4.42 is one of those instances in which Samaritans who've heard Jesus speak for a few days, they say, we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. We've heard Him for ourselves. We know He's it. Jesus is the Savior. And this is the truth. Guys, all of us, we need saving in one way or another. Actually, in multiple ways, we need a Savior. You know, Jews have needed a Savior. There's few people in the world that could appreciate the need for a Savior more than the Jews, right? Because from the time they're persecuted in Egypt to today, Uniquely throughout the history of the world, they've been persecuted. They're looking for a Savior. They need a Savior. They still do today. You will find too, have you ever had a circumstance in your life in which you just cried out, God help me or God save me? You know, it's health, it's money, it's some kind of sin, it's desperation of one sort or another. And you realize life's bigger than me and I can't handle this and I need someone to come in bigger and better than me, and save me out of this situation. One of my favorite stories of this is Matthew 14, 30. And by the way, there's four of these accounts in Matthew's Gospel where someone just says, Lord, save me. And you know what you find is, in fact, the first account is a leper in Matthew. And he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can, you can cleanse me, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I'm willing. Be, be cleansed, be healed. Well, in Matthew 14, you remember the story, Peter and the disciples are in a boat and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now, these guys know what they're doing. They're fishermen. They've lived on this sea, but it's stormy. 
And Jesus isn't with them, but in the middle of the night with the sea against them and the storm and the wind, they see Jesus cheating. He's walking on water and He's going to pass them. First they think He's a ghost. And then He says, no, it's me. And Pete says, okay, well, Lord, if it's really You, command that I walk on the water out to You. And Jesus says, the water's fine. Come on in. So Pete gets out of the boat and he's walking across. And initially it's working, right? But then it says his eyes, they leave Jesus. And he's aware now how strong the wind is, how tall the waves are. And it says he starts sinking into the waves. And what's he do? I love this. He just cries out, Lord, save me. And this is just like Psalm 18, by the way. And Jesus reaches down and picks him up and saves him. And you and I, there's points in your life where you'll know, God, you've got to save me. I have no help. I can't do this. Lord, save me. And you'll find in Jesus a Savior. The biggest thing, guys, the biggest thing is that we need a Savior who can deliver us from our sin. I remember talking to a guy, nicest guy in the world, by the way. Delightful fellow if you met him. We were talking about spiritual matters, and he, he told me basically he thought he was good enough to go to heaven. And he, and he was a very good guy, morally, ethical, I mean, you name it. But I said, I said, you know, but here's the thing for me. I said, what do you do with your sin? Because you're not perfect and you've sinned. And God's perfect. What do you do with your sin? He's like, don't know. Well, you got a problem. We've all got a problem. The biggest thing we need saving from is we've got sin and God's holy and He can't accept us as is. And we're born that way. You know, how many people do you interact with? And if you say, are you going to heaven or hell? They'll say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. And you say, well, why is that? Well, I've tried to be a good person, live a good life. You know, and so you've you got to clarify all that, don't you? So John 3.36 says, it actually gives both sides of the gospel, bad news and good news. The bad news is this. There's no question. You're born under the wrath of God. You exist under the wrath of God. And unless and until you entrust yourself to the care of Jesus Christ, there's no question about where you're going. You're born under wrath. You're born under judgment because you come from parents who are sinners and they came from parents who are sinners and you're a sinner from birth before your first breath. There's no question. Everybody needs a savior and Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. You know, this church is named Lion and Lamb is filled with meaning just like these terms. Uh, John 129 is where we get our that half of our church name lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. Why did he come? The lamb came to take away the sins of the world. Sinners need a savior. And there's only one option on being saved, and it's Jesus. Isaiah 1.6 said this. God says this to Israel. You're like a person... And he says, from the soles of your feet to the top of your head, you're morally deficient. What good is there there? Romans 3, Paul says, there's nothing good. <laughs> In any of us before a holy and perfect God, we need to be saved from our sins. John 5, 24 puts it this way. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. He's passed out of death and into life. That's salvation. That's the kind of Savior we need. And there's only one place you can get this. John 14, remember, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't come to the Father but through me. Peter says it this way in Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no other. 
There's no other option. There's no other source. There's no other Savior adequate for your sins and mine because God's only given one name, one person, one means by which you must be saved, the text says, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing the angel says when they describe Jesus at His birth is, the Savior has come. The one who's going to ultimately redeem Israel and the one whose life and then death pays and covers your sin that's the one who's been born. You needed a Savior. God has sent a Savior. At Christmas, and it's easy to get distracted in all kinds of ways about Christmas, right? I think that's why the Christmas songs and carols are so helpful. They focus us back on the truth, the elements, the promises that have everything to do with Jesus' birth. This Christmas, have we entrusted ourselves and our sins to Jesus as our Savior? There should be no question on this. We're going to heaven or hell. We're saved or we're lost. And so if you ask yourself, if, if someone asks you the question, are you going to heaven? If there's any doubt in your mind, clear up the doubt. We entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and He saves us from our sin. Jesus saved me just like the leper. I'm willing to be saved. We needed a Savior. God sent a Savior. The second term He uses there is, thank you, is Messiah. Is Messiah. Remember in the Old Testament for the Jews, if a new king came on the throne or a new high priest was appointed, what did they do? They took consecrated oil and they poured it over their head. Bit messy. But that was the symbol that God had appointed this person as his representative as king or as high priest. Both offices were appointed in that manner. The Hebrew for anoint is mashach. And that's the word we get Messiah from. In the Greek, we say Christos, christened, or Christ. So the angel tells the shepherds that the little boy in the feeding trough is in fact God's anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ. Guys, this actually has two implications. The first is this. Israel's waiting for God's choice of a king who's going to set up a kingdom which the Jewish nation is central and that will last forever because God made them that promise. You see this in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. God was speaking through the prophet to David. David wanted to build a house, a temple for God. God says, I'm going to have someone else do that. But he said, I'll build you a house. And this is what he promised. After you, one shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah, an anointed king who would redeem Israel and would rule over Israel and in fact over the nations of the world with Israel at its center. They're waiting for that king. You see that same thought reiterated in Psalm 89. God says, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever, your seed, the promised one and build your throne for all generations. The Jews were waiting for this messianic king. They're looking for him actively. This was still a question. You remember when someone of prominence rises up, the Jews wonder, is this the teacher Moses promised? Is this the king God promised? The question is always, who are you? Remember to John the Baptist, who are you? Why are you baptizing? Because they're looking. So this is why in Matthew 2, you remember we looked at this last week, the wise men from the east who aren't Jewish, but they have Jewish scriptures, 
They come to Jerusalem. They stop at the stoplight in the center of the town. They ask, hey, which way, right or left? We're looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. They probably have the book of Numbers. They know that a special star rises, indicates the birth of Israel's king. They're all looking for a king. You get this in John 1 when Jesus is just starting his ministry and he's picking his disciples. And by the way, you see this book ended in John. This is significant. Jesus meets Nathanael and he tells Nathanael things that he couldn't know by nature. It's, it's clearly it's more than an, a, a mere man. And so Nathanael says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You're the anointed messianic king. Jesus, you're it. Palm Sunday in John 12, what do the crowds shout out? They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who is, who is the Messiah, who is the king of Israel. And at the end of John, when, when Jesus shows up to uh, the crowd and the disciples and Thomas wasn't there before, but he shows up then and Thomas says what? He says, my, my Lord and my God, you're the one we've been waiting for you. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 6.15, Jesus is the blessed only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So at Christmas again, amidst all the other things that are going on, do we recognize Jesus as our King? Because that has implications, doesn't it? We're used to, we elect our representatives and our senators and our presidents, don't we? And that's not at all the way a kingdom works. A king is the authority and everything flows from the king. He doesn't ask your permission. He tells you. The citizens of a kingdom appear before the king to say, Lord, what may I do for you? What do you require of me? Do we come to Christ as king? Do we bow the knee to him? Do we say, King Jesus, what do you want from me? What do you want for me? How do I represent your kingdom? We should because he is absolute king. The other thing along this term of Messiah, which often gets left out, but I think it's important, is that Jesus is also anointed means he's also high priest. You don't see this brought up in the Gospels as much as you do in the epistles and specifically in Hebrews. Nine times Jesus is called in the book of Hebrews, our high priest. Now, this sounds wild to a Jew because Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. To be a priest, you've got to come from Levi. To be a high priest, you have to come from the line of Aaron. And he's not. And God says, that's okay. He's a different kind of priest. He's more like Melchizedek in Genesis 14. He's of a different kind of priesthood. And his priesthood never ends. He didn't offer up sheep or goats for our sins, but himself. If you look in Hebrews 7... By the way, Hebrews is a great, great book to take anyone who is religious but not saved because it simply is a great way of shutting down all our natural appeals to our own righteousness and saying God has a better way. In Hebrews 7.27, we read that he has no need, Jesus, like those high priests, Levitical priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is both the high priest who makes the offering and he's the offering. Yeah. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 say he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost. We would say save forever, save entirely, save with no doubt whatsoever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. Uh, uniquely, you know, we deal with our sin in all kinds of ways, don't we? If we don't have otherwise inadequate means. So we use things in life. We abuse things in life. We use people. We abuse people trying to do something for our conscience because our conscience tells us we've sinned and we know that. Hebrews says the only remedy for guilty conscience, and it's good to know I've sinned. We can dull our conscience so that it's no longer reactive. But a guilty conscience tells us something's wrong. And Hebrews says the blood of Christ is adequate to solve that guilty conscience. Because when we come to God through Christ, our high priest and our new offering, he says your sins are forgiven. So that when Jesus comes as the anointed one or as the Messiah, you don't just get a king, a benevolent king who rules over your life in a loving, benevolent way, but you get a high priest who guarantees your sins are forgiven. They'll never be brought back on you. In fact, it says he lives always to make intercession for you. you know, yeah, you get to a passage like 1 John, when Christians confess our sins, it says in the language of 1 John, we have an advocate. Well, the advocate is the high priest. And he basically says, Father, I've already paid for my sins. Those sins have been forgiven. They've been adequately covered. And the father says, you're right, they have. We've got a high priest, an anointed high priest who reigns in heaven today, seated at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for you and me today. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 2. He says there's one God and there's one mediator. Between you and I and the Father, there's only one link in the chain of redemption. And it's the man, Christ Jesus. We've got that in Jesus. That was part of the incarnation. And then last... The angel says, you've got a Savior, you've got an anointed Savior, and you've got a Lord. And I think of the three terms, this one is typically given the least importance because we understand it the least as far as the context in which it was given. So Lord comes from the Greek kurios. And kurios, depending on context, if I call Bill Lord, it's like Bill's my boss, I say sir. So I call him kurios, my, my Lord. But related to Jesus, it has a different meaning and it means he's God. He's not just sir. He's not just a nice. He's not an important rabbi. He's God. We know this because going back to the Septuagint, when the Jews translated the proper name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, they used the Greek term kurios. So when this is given to Jesus in the New Testament, it's attributing to him the status of deity. It's not just a sir, it's not just a rabbi, it's not just a king, it's God himself. And of course, this is exactly the promise that was made in Isaiah 9, that God would dwell with us, that one who comes and he has the government on his shoulders, he is called Emmanuel. God is now with us. When the angel says it's Christ the Lord, he says God is now with us with you. Isaiah 9 has been fulfilled. God Himself is dwelling in your midst. It's interesting. If you ever have these discussions with people that say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Or the question is, is He a man? Is, you know, is He more than a man? What's the deal? What were His claims? The Jews, 
they had no problem understanding Jesus claimed to be God. In John 5, verse 19, and John 10, 33, the Jews respond to God and they say, you being a man, claim to be God. They understood his words clearly. He claimed to be God. Now, whether the claim is true or not, that's another issue. But you have to give credit to Jesus and the Gospels. The claim was clear. He said, I'm God. And that's where Thomas comes up again in John 20 when he says to God, remember Nathaniel says in John 1, you're God. And Thomas says in John 20, you're God. God wants us to know Jesus is God, front and end. That's who he is. So it's a disservice to say or to entertain the notion Jesus didn't claim to be God or the scriptures don't claim that he's deity. Absolutely, front to back, inside and out. That is the claim. That was one of the key, actually it was the central question for the early church. Who and what is Jesus? And so that's why you see at the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea, the town in modern day Turkey in 325, the church got together to settle once and for all. What did Jesus claim about himself? Who and what is Jesus? And in part, they said this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. He is God of God. Jesus is God of God. He is light of light. If there's any confusion, he is very God of very God. Begotten, not main, one substance with the Father. They're saying absolutely, guys, unambiguously, as clear as you can say it. How else can you say it? Jesus is God. So when the angel says the Lord who's born to you today is a savior, the Christ, the Lord, God is now with you. God has come down from heaven and he's dwelling with men on earth. God is now with us. Do we acknowledge Jesus as God in the flesh and do we give him worship because he's God? Do we give him the worship that's due him as God? God came down from heaven to earth. To save us, the second person of the Trinity takes on our flesh and, of course, carries in his body our sins on the cross, offers up not bulls and goats, but himself. When we receive Jesus as Savior, when we obey him as our king, when we entrust ourselves to his intercession as our high priest, we are simply coming home to the one who made us, to our God, our Lord and our God. So this Christmas, as we're thinking about these things, Christmas is Wednesday, just around the corner. Trust Jesus to save you and he will. We have a savior who's willing. Lord, save me and he will. Follow him as king and he will lead you. Lord, what do you require of me? What do you want from me this morning? What's on your agenda for my day today? Ask him to lead you and he will. Look to him in your sin. And guys, absolutely know when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us because the blood has been shed and the priest is there before the Father interceding on our behalf and then embrace him as our God and enjoy him forever. Stand with me if you would. And we'll just read this short verse together as the worship team comes up and we'll continue to worship. So we're joining the angel chorus when we share these words together. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen.